Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, as we encounter here at the end of the book of Isaiah some, some kind of extraordinary, extreme realities, I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts and open our hearts to receive this word. I pray that it would dwell in us richly. Lord, more than anything, this sermon, Lord, I just beg you to let this dwell in us richly. That this might inhabit our our minds and our hearts and our imaginations and come to dominate our lives. That we would be people described by the outcome of these truths. But I pray that your word might now run and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Life can be very complicated, right? There's a lot of a lot of times in life where things just seem gray, where you're just not sure what to do. We've got this, this sort of new phenomenon in the Western world called decision fatigue, where you just feel depleted and exhausted. I don't want to make, right, right around 4.30, right, when you should be like planning supper, right? Like, I don't want to make any more decisions. Where are the Doritos and leave me alone? Right, they say that uh, in, when I was a kid, when in, the early ni- in the early 80s, uh, they say that the average person made about, uh, was... Um, Assaulted with about 500 advertisements a day. Now it's upwards of 5,000. 5,000 people saying, hey, this or this, this or this, us or them, make this decision. I mean, I did a, I researched this for about three seconds on Google, and they said that people can make upwards of 25,000 decisions on average in a day. I don't know if that like that's everything, you know, but that is a, a lot of decision. You think you're making a lot of decisions in your life, you know, and this sort of increases, right? You get to what first job I want, what car, what school. People start asking you, what are you going to do? 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 And you're like, ah, ah. And then you think, oh, okay, good. I got that sort of sorted out, right? And then life hands you a family, kids, and then your, your choices just go poof. Which car seat, which stroller, you know, are they going to sleep here or like this or like that or there or eat this or that or then, when, how, right? All of the decisions just blow up. And so you reach a certain point where you're just like, I just want to go to a buffet. I don't make any decisions. Here's the card. Feed me, right? Or I just want to go to a discount club. So I don't want to look at all the wall of almonds. Just I'll, I'll be willing to spend more money to get to throw away half a bag of almonds. Just... <laughs> I just only want one almond option. Life can be very complicated. It can be overwhelming in that way with lots and lots of decisions. But underneath all of this, and this is how Isaiah ends, underneath all of that, there is a stark fundamental simplicity. That the universe is not confusing. The universe is not full of a lot of options. It's binary. It's yes or no. Which one are you? Are you the creator or are you the creation? Really simple. And a ton depends on your answer to that. Are you the king or are you a subject? Are you the king or are you a subject? Are you with the king or are you against the king? Very simple, yes or no, binary options. 
Are you a worshiper of the Creator? Are you in rebellion against the Creator? Very, very simple, stark options. Scripture is an invitation. It is an invitation to turn from our ways and all the ruin that comes from them and to turn to Jesus. And as we've been talking about this these last few weeks, it is a return to Jesus, a return to reality. We talked about this last week. Being humble, contrite in spirit, trembling at the Word of God is just living a truthful life. Like we are people who need God desperately. That's just the truth. If you're, if we're, to the extent that we're not living in line with this, we are delusional. And we're living in a fabrication. So Scripture's invitation works off of two very simple, fundamental, yes or no, binary kinds of principles, which is how Isaiah ends. And here's what it is. Everyone's welcome. Everyone chooses. Who's welcome? Everyone's welcome. But everybody chooses. So let's start with everyone is welcome. You want the good news or the bad news first, right? Everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. This is what verses 18 to 23 are all about. So this, our passage is framed by the everyone chooses part, but in the center here is the everyone is welcome part. And verses 18 to 23 describe, uh, in, sort of in biblical terms, they describe God's all-nation mission. So let's look especially at verse 18 and 19. We'll start there. The Lord says, I know the works of the rebels and their thoughts, and the time is coming, though, to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come, and they shall see my glory. And I'll set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. So all of those, those strange names, those are... If you could have gotten inside a map in the head of an average Israelite, that's the furthest extent of their known universe. All of those places. As far out as you can imagine. And then it goes further and says, and the coastlands far away. Places beyond the known habitable universe of our world. Even there, people are going to learn about God's fame and glory and give Him praise. Now, this has always been God's plan. Right back in the garden, God put Adam and Eve, He planted the garden, and He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? God's plan was for that good thing, for His rule through Adam and Eve to extend, that the earth would be filled with people who know how glorious He is. That all fell apart. God relaunches it in Genesis 12 with Abraham. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make my covenant with you, and in you shall all the families on the earth, all nations, be blessed. We saw this at the beginning of our study of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, where right there at the very beginning, even though God is being very critical of how Israel's behaving, He gives them a promise that someday all the nations are going to come streaming in here to Jerusalem to learn how to walk in the light of the Lord from the great priest and the great king who will, who will explain this to them. And that vision of all the nations streaming into Israel is what is being described here. From Tarshish and, and Pool and Lud and, and Jubal and Tubal and Javan. 
The other prophet Habakkuk says this the best, right? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And so when we come into the New Testament then, I mean, I want you to understand this. When we come into the New Testament and, and there's all these stories about how the Gentiles who have been, who have been completely separate from Israel and their hope and their expectation and the promises that God made with them, they've been completely separate. Now they're being brought in to Israel, brought into those promises, brought in to, to receive that hope fulfilled in Christ. They're being brought in. That was never plan B. That was always the plan. That was not a plot twist. That, this, this is what Isaiah 66 is saying. This is the plan. But I want you to notice something. It's more than just uh, all nations being included in this. Look at verse 20. Let's pick up there. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and leaders, on mules and on dromedaries. This is a reference to all the different right, directions and places and cultures being represented here. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. You understand what he's saying here? That the all-nation mission of God isn't just bringing people like to the cheap seats. He's bringing the Gentiles all the way in. That even people who have no genetic relationship to Israelite are welcome in to be priests before God. That's us. We're welcomed all the way in. But I want you to think about how the, the readers of Isaiah would have heard this. Right? Could, you, could all Israelites be priests? No. Could all Israelites be Levites? No, like you had to be a Levite. You had to be a child of Aaron and his, his sub-tribe. Right? You, there were specific parameters around this. And now Gentiles get to do this? Gentiles get to come all the way? And this is an extremely shocking statement. that We're not just talking about inclusion. We're talking about some sort of extraordinary, disgusting equality with everybody. Look again at verses 18 and 19. The thing that does this, the power that does this is, uh, if you look at the end of verse 18, they shall come and they shall see my glory. And then again at the end of verse 19, those who have not heard my fame or seen my glory, they shall declare my glory. Hearing everyone is welcome to come and meet the glorious God. And this is what our message of the gospel is. We are explaining how glorious God is by looking at who Jesus is, look at what he did according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, and look at now what all that means for us. That is all an explanation of how glorious God is, how famous he should be, and how glorious he is. And so, I want you to see that what he's describing here is that the gospel works everywhere for everyone. The gospel works everywhere for everyone. Which you might say, okay, that, yeah, okay, that, I get, like I knew that. But I just want to reflect on that for a moment. It's not that it just works for some people. I think in our uh, sort of world of personality tests, our world of, uh, you know, everybody's individual point of view and, and worldview is just so special and precious. So if, if that works for you, that's good. But if you need this, I, I don't need that. I need this other thing. 
Or, and, and who are you to take your religion or your viewpoint and then and, you know, foist it upon these other people? Or, but the, well, what he's saying here is that, no, this is actually what everybody wants. This is actually what everybody needs. And it works for everybody. It works for everybody. It works for the, the tribal people in the Amazon who still we haven't discovered when we explain to them the gospel, they can come to faith and they can receive it and rejoice. Just as some long-tenured Harvard elite philosophy professor, if the Lord works in his heart and he hears it, he's going to come to faith in the same Jesus through the same story. It works for everybody all over the world. And it always has. And so we come to 22 and 23. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. The new heavens and the new earth, which the first mention of that is in Isaiah 65. So this is still kind of a fresh concept for Isaiah's readers. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be characterized by extraordinary diversity and equality. And this is what we've seen in world history. We've seen the Christian message go all over the place. About 100 years, 150 years ago, most people in the Western world thought that Christianity was a Western religion, right? White, European, American We've been, uh, the missiologists have been looking at this more carefully in more recent years, and they've come to find out that better than six out of every ten Christians on the planet live in non-Western lands. We're talking Southeast Asia, subcontinent of India, Africa, Middle East, South America. Better than six out of every ten Christians alive today live in the global South. And there are large Christian populations all over the world, in every continent, in every region. So we've, we've started to see this by the work of the Spirit in our history here. And in our lifetime, we see it even more. So everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. And so what does that mean for us? Well, let me, just, let me just start by saying, uh, this is not the point that I think Isaiah is getting at, but I just want to make sure that we say this. Everyone's welcome all the way in before this great God, this great God and His great grace made the way so that we can come all the way back into a full and open, uninhibited relationship with Him. And that is available to everyone. So if you're here this morning and you feel like, I don't know if I'm welcome, I've got these things that I don't know if, if I'm qualified for this good thing, you are. You just, you are. That's not what Isaiah 66 is about, but I want you to make sure that you hear that. That you are welcome all the way in. We're going to have communion in just a minute. We'll celebrate what Jesus did for us. Dying, shedding His blood, being broken for our sins, and giving Himself to us that we might live. Right? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him won't, won't perish, won't die, but will have the gift of everlasting life in Him. So if you're here and you're, you've been on the fence about this, like, is it me? Do I qualify? I don't know. I want you to sort that out in the next 20 minutes so that you can have communion with us and, and rejoice in Jesus as well. And that's all that it takes. 
You just have to turn that corner and say, is it true, Lord? If it's true, make it true for me. Jesus, I want in. Jesus, thank you. You can take your first communion. You can have first communion. We don't even have a big class or anything. You can do first communion just like that. But what I think Isaiah 66 is actually bringing us to is this. Everyone's welcome, and so people of God who are receiving Isaiah, everyone needs an invite. Everyone needs an invite. Let's get those invitations out. Right? The, the church is this thing, this Javal, Tuban, Tubal, Tarshish, Pulud, Schmorgesborg. And so churches and Christians ought to reflect this. We and our churches ought to be characterized by a word I made up for this sermon, just for you, invitationality. <laughs> it means we give invitations to people. We extend invitations to people. Invitationality, hospitality, and welcome. We want people to know that they are welcome. We want people to feel welcomed. And we want that welcome to be genuine. We want them to know that they are invited, that they are, they're welcome, and it is a full welcome. And here... The greater the differences, the better we like it. The more this, the glory of God gets lifted up and seen. So for the church, whatever social or cultural divisions exist in your community or in your country, in your region, whatever social and cultural divisions exist, we who are a part of this vision ought to be at the forefront of all practical reconciliation. Practical reconciliation. Practical reconciliation is different from talking reconciliation or impractical reconciliation, which is reconciliation via policy or reconciliation via social media. We're talking about actual reconciliation. And all of this is rooted in what Jesus has done for us, described here in Isaiah 66, but also here in Paul. This is the centerpiece of the Apostle Paul's mission, what Jesus commissioned him to do. This is Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's us, Every one of us has been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He made us all one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and will reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Whatever hostilities the world manufactures for us to feel against people, Jesus intends to kill those hostilities. And the church is to be the embodiment of that reconciliation practically, made practical. That's when Christians actually themselves extend welcome to people nearby who are different. We support missionaries. Missionaries are good. We need more missionaries. We need more people serving the international church, church planning, leadership development, um, mercy ministries, hospitals, orphanages, all of these things. We need those things from our churches in this world. But in a very more, much more immediate sense, our communities need the Christians who are there to be welcoming into their lives the people around them who are different from them. That's what Isaiah 66 is describing. Now we, send, uh, we participate in sending the Briggs to Togo in Africa. So if the Briggs came back for a report, we just recently enjoyed them being back here. If they were to come back with a report and show us their slideshow, and it's all 
white European American people and they're telling us about how many people they served in the hospital and it's all white European American people, we'd be like, uh, right? Because it's the, their explicit directive is to go there and to cross, cross social and cultural boundaries. That's their explicit directive. Friends, Isaiah 66, Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations. It's our explicit directive too. If you're going to show a slideshow of your life and ministry and it's all people that look exactly like you, right, this is our explicit directive as well. So fellowship across whatever your culture's drummed up with to try to divide people into consumer groups, hint, hint, right? Uh, whatever your culture sort of divided us up into, it is incum- it's, it's for us across the social boundaries uh, that is a key indicator of faith in the gospel. Because who do I want to hang out with? People like me. People as close to me as I can get. So that every time I go, uh, they laugh, right? So we're just all, oh, we're just in perfect sync. It's a great time. So why would I ever want to be with, right, people very different from me? Different ages, different places in life, different socioeconomic sectors, different, from different parts of the world, right? Why would I ever want to do that? Only because the glory of God is now compelling me into that space of discomfort, into that space. And so let's just like state the obvious, but make sure we get it stated, right? So any sort of racism or nationalism, both of which the American church has been struggling with, uh, not just in recent years, but also in recent years, any of that stuff, Uh, indicates a dangerous ignorance about the gospel. To the extent like, do you get this? Right? This is the fundamental Christian position towards nationalism and racism. Do you understand who you are and where you now are and how you got there? This This is a world of grace you live in, babe. Like This is not that other stuff. The people of God are to be the people of the invitation, the people of the welcome, welcoming one another, Paul says, as God in Christ has welcomed you. We're the people of the welcome, we're the people of the invitation. In this way, we are to be like Christ. This is how the book of Isaiah ends. Everyone is welcome. Everyone needs to be invited. Jesus comes, we talked about this recently, Jesus comes to the temple and in what is to be the court of the nations where the, the world is supposed to come and pray to the God of Israel, he finds a flea market. Right? So Israel ignored this because it's more convenient to ignore this than it is to receive it. But we who have the gospel, we can celebrate this, we can rejoice in it, this is for us. Here's the second big thing in our passage. Now, this is almost like, it was almost like that was the part where the lights were on, and now I'm going to flip the lights off. This is like kind of intention with that. This is everyone chooses. So Isaiah, the ending passage here is a contrast. We just looked at 18 to 23 is about how all of these worshipers are going to be gathered. But now look at 15 to 17 with me. Behold, behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. 
For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify, purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst. This is, uh, this is all a references to not just pagan worship, but actually the, the, the kinds of worship that are prohibited in the book of Leviticus. So what Isaiah is describing here is people who are approaching God in, in ways that they think are good, and this is God's perspective on it. You are actually in full, open, Levitical disobedience. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. And verse 24, And the worshipers shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. So the worshipers are gathered here, but then this is also an extraordinary description of how the rebels are going to be judged. Everyone is a fundamental binary to, to all things, right? Everyone is going to be gathered into one of two groups. Worshippers or rebels. No gray. No medium. What is it that they did? I think it's really interesting that on the one hand, you've got Gentiles coming in to be priests and Levites. On the other hand, you've got people who are engaged in religious activity who are, going to, who are being considered rebels. So this describes in verse 17, it describes their religious activity, their desire to sanctify and purify themselves. But he says in verse 18, but I know their works and thoughts. What do they do? They are rebels against God. All religiosity is rebellion. And all rebellion is religious. Those who, like the people in this text, those who are devoted to religious systems not built on faith in Christ. Right? So they're trying to sanctify and purify themselves, but the Lord says, I know their works and thoughts. They're trying to do this for themselves as opposed to putting their faith in the free offer of grace from God. So those people who devote themselves to religious systems that are not built on faith in Christ are in actuality devoted to a system of faith opposed to faith in Christ. They're saying, I won't let Jesus do it for me. I won't let your grace do it for me. I don't want your mercy. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. That is not just not Jesus. That's opposed to Jesus. They are rebels. But then on the flip side as well, the people that we think of as rebels, the people who are living without reference to God, right, they're, they're religiously devoted to that rebellion. Right? If you think about the person in your life who atheistic, agnostic, whatever, just uh, uh, living for pleasure, living for the world, right? and then they show up at church and they start like, singing worship songs, for them to do that, go to a Bible study, take communion, for them to do that, they would have to, they would have to kill their entire idea on of themselves and their lives and what their lives are for. 
They're pursuing their rebellion with a religious... Everyone's religious. Everyone is. They are, we are religious in our rebellions. And so both of these groups are really defined in contrast to the free offer of the gospel. The everyone welcome business. We don't want that. But when you rebel against God, what happens is you start walking into the darkness. You start walking to a place of destruction. You start walking towards death. And so whether they are religious, right? How many, how many bad things have happened in the name of religion? Right? A couple, a couple, right? Whether they're religious or irreligious, these rebels against the gospel, they're the ones who have filled this world with the violence and the cruelty that we see. And so they deserve this judgment. They deserve this judgment. And so on the one hand, the new heavens and the new earth will be characterized by wild diversity, on the other hand, of a different kind, the new heavens and new earth will be characterized by an absolute lack of diversity. Every single person in it will have said yes. Every single person there will have said yes. And the core question, here's the core question, here's the core difference. Will you be a worshiper? Yes or no? Will you be a worshiper? Yes or no? What is a worshiper? A worshiper is simply this. A worshiper is not, again, some religious fabrication, right? Like all of a sudden we start singing and you just go, I can't, right? We're not trying to like coax your liver out through your mouth here. A worshiper is somebody who sees something great and glorious and they're afraid. But then they see this grace that has come to them, that they might approach the greatness. And they receive the grace, and they move into the presence of the greatness and act appropriately. It's just living appropriately in the presence of God's greatness by His grace. That's what worship is. And so people who don't want to do that, rebels, are people who look at the greatness and they say, not great enough. They look at the grace, they say, I'm not interested in that. And then they act appropriate, they act accordingly. Paul says it this way, he says, they suppress the truth and they refuse to give thanks to God. Let me just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you're like, ah, God's greatness, God's big, I don't know if he's, if you're struggling with these things, let me just encourage you to, to sort this out in a hurry. And to give thanks to God, to live in, in alignment with the truth, with reality. So the end of the, end of the rebels, their, their end, their outcome is precisely fair. It is precisely fair. If this doesn't strike you as being good, let me encourage you with two verses that I think help me personally, this is sort of an aside, help me understand God's judgment and, and how to think about it helpfully. The first one, John 5, Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, to Jesus. So the person who's going to judge everybody is Jesus, which I think puts a little bit of a different flavor on our vision of the judgment scene. It's not the angry God with the gavel, but the Son of God, our Savior, 
making that decision. The second thing is one thing Paul says in almost a throwaway line in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which I find this extremely practically helpful for me. Paul, in talking about how people are judging him or whether he's judging himself, he says this. He says, The Lord is going to bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Every time I read that, I get a little bit of the chills. Like there's so much, friends, that we do not know about ourselves even, let alone about the people in our lives. So we can safely entrust that judgment to the one who knows all those things, who is also Jesus. So when we talk about precisely fair judgment, this is the Bible's vision of how that can come about. In the end, every person ever will be in two groups, the worshipers group or the rebels group. Everyone chooses, so everyone should be informed. Right, so just as we said, everyone's welcome, so everybody should be invited. Everyone chooses, so everybody should be better informed. And it's our job to make the world Help the world make a more informed decision to understand the true knowledge of who God is. And I think we do this in, here's just two sort of rough ways. We could probably talk more about this, but let your light so shine before others, Jesus says, that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So in spreading the knowledge of God's glory, part of that is done through our good works. The second thing I want to share is something Paul says, which I just, I love this verse. I think it's really helpful for us. Here's the Apostle Paul, right? This great orator of the Christian faith who was never scared of anything ever. But here's what he says. He says, pray for me that words may be given me. Do you ever feel like words aren't given to you? Pray for me that words might be given to me. We talk about sharing our faith and inviting people and informing them of the true knowledge of God and you immediately go, Paul felt that. Pray that words would be given to me so that in opening my mouth, Boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He didn't feel bold. He needed prayer for that. He didn't know what to say. He needed prayer for that. So good works, prayer, and speak. Everyone's welcome, so everyone should be invited. Everyone chooses. And so it's our job to get them the right information. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for welcoming us in Christ before you. None of us here deserve this. None of us here deserve what we're about to celebrate, the gift of Jesus our Lord. All of us should, by rights, remain cut off from this hope. And yet you and your graciousness and your condescension have made a way so that we who are unworthy may come by grace into the presence of your glory. And so Lord, I pray that the heart, your heart that did that great work for us, that you, your heart would come into us now. And as we turn, as we sing, as we take the Lord's table together, would you work in us to give us a sense of gratitude for all you have done and a sense of willingness or even eagerness to share what you have done with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.